Today we're going to do Mishnah 11, 12, and 13 of chapter 3. They are all authored by the same author, Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. We're going to read them quickly, and then we will talk about this very interesting character from the Mishnahic era, and we'll tell over some of the amazing stories about his life and his piety. And then we're going to dig into his teaching and maybe even offer a parallel between his life and the stories that were told about him in the Talmud and this amazing set of teachings. Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa Omer, Rabbi Hanina, the son of Dosa, says, Anyone whose fear of sin takes priority, precedes, supersedes his wisdom, his wisdom will endure. However, if someone has wisdom that precedes, that takes priority over his fear of sin, then his wisdom will not endure. So like a binary formulation here. If your fear of sin exceeds or precedes your wisdom, your wisdom will endure. Otherwise, it will not endure. That's the first Mishnah. Very similar teaching in the second Mishnah. Who Omer, he used to say, Whoever has good deeds that exceed his wisdom, then his wisdom will endure. And if someone has their wisdom exceeding their good deeds, in that instance too, his wisdom will not endure. And finally, he used to say, Anyone that the spirit of people is pleased with him, then the spirit of the Almighty is also pleased with him. But conversely, if people are not pleased with someone, it's evident that God is not pleased with that person either. There's going to be a parallel between how people view someone and how God views someone. If people view someone positively, then God Two views that person positively, vice versa. Uh, if someone is not viewed positively by people, then God does not view them positively either. So who was this great sage, Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa? He lived towards the end of the Second Temple era. So he lived while the Second Temple was still extant. He lived in the lower Galilee uh, in northern Israel, near the Tinerid, if you've been there. Uh, he was a pupil uh, slash colleague of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, uh, the great sage that we met uh, in the previous chapter of Pirkei Avos. So the Talmud gives a very wide array of stories about this great sage. Uh, I wanted to share a collection of the teachings and the stories that we read about him because it's it's very eye opening. It's a it's a character of a, a world that we don't really have anymore today. So, first of all, we read about him that he was someone who lived entirely for Olmaba. His, his sole focus was the spiritual world and he actively denigrated and repelled the physical material world. So, for example, we're told in the Talmud that he was very poor and more about that in a little bit. And every week, all he would eat was caribs, which the Talmud says is kind of a very cheap and not tasty and not tantalizing food. 
and he would have a small amount of it, and that's what he would subsist from each week. So he would actively, and this is something that we see amongst great sages even in later years, but the, the, the theory is that to the degree that someone is immersed in this world, that is the same degree that they cannot be immersed in the next world. It means it's, it's binary and it's zero sum. The more someone invests here, the more they necessarily have to forfeit there. And not only in, in reward, so to speak, but just in, in, in focus. You know, which world are you prioritizing? You only have 100% of ability, of talents, of time, of investment, of priorities, and you have to choose, you know, how much you're allocating here and how much you're allocating there, not just in the location, so to speak, but in your focus, in what you're investing your time in. And therefore, we see a penchant, certainly with this sage, and he's highlighted for it, in, in the Talmud in many different ways, as we shall see, but even with other sages, that they not only would be focused on the spiritual, but they would also try to mitigate or to minimize, to limit their exposure to anything physical and from the physical realm because they felt that that would counteract, that would reduce from their spiritual viability and their spiritual uh, uh, output – and therefore, we see here this idea, just as an introduction to the character, from Chani Bedosa, he would specifically limit how much he eats and how much they enjoy in the physical world, so that way it would not conflict, it would not reduce from their spiritual world. And in fact, the Talmud says that he is the reason why Olamaba was created. He epitomizes someone of the next world, because even when he was here, that was his sole focus. And thus, it's almost as if he was never a citizen here because, yes, he was here, but he never really bought into the ideology prevalent here. So so this uh, this asceticism uh, that Rabbi Hanayim Adosin displayed, I want to just clarify this is not for us. This is something that we see the great sages of our history uh, sometimes opted for that. They were so consumed by the spiritual world, the physical world didn't excite them at all. In fact, they were nauseated by it. Uh, the sons of the Gona Vilna used to write, wrote in their, uh, in their description of their father, how he would only consume like an olive's volume of bread twice a day and he would dunk it in water so he would swallow it quickly to not even taste it. So there's something, again, this is, this is for the sages. This is for the, the ascetics. This is not for simpletons like us, and probably it's bad advice for us, but it does introduce us to this great character. So I want to talk a little bit about his prayer, because there's many stories about his prayer and uh, the superlative power that it had that we find in the Talmud. So firstly, in the book of Brachos, page 34b, we read in the Mishnah how it's how important it is for people to say the right words in prayer. You know, today we have a prayer book. The prayer book is only dated to the 10th century of the Common Era. People would pray by heart. And they would try to organize the words in a way that it would flow properly. So as the Mishnah, if someone prays and makes a blunder, makes a mistake, it's a bad sign for them. You should pray and that, that doesn't look good. When you're fumbling for words while praying, it's not a good thing. And if someone is leading the services, if they're the cantor, well, it's even worse because it portends poorly on the entire congregation. And then they, then the Mishnah comments about Rebbechanin Bandosa. When he would pray for sick people, he was able to determine if his prayer was efficacious and would say, this person I prayed for is going to live. Even though they may have a terminal illness, I could see the prayer is organized, it's structured, it's, it's, it's going to be accepted. This person, 
that they're going to die. I cl- I'm fumbling over the words. The prayer itself is not structured. It's not smooth. Uh, it's it's rocky. I could tell that my prayer is not going to be accepted, and therefore they're going to die. And he would even comment. They asked him, "How do you know? What are you are you a prophet?" He'd say, "No, I'm not a prophet. I just ha- I have a tradition. I I see that when the prayer is smooth, it works. The prayer is not smooth, it does not work." The Talmud adds several stories about his prayer. And it tells the story, the, uh, tells a story of the son of Ramagamliel. He got sick. Ramagamliel was the Nasi, was the president of the Jewish people. One of the most significant people at that juncture where the temple was destroyed. And he was the one organizing the Renaissance efforts to rebuild the Jewish nation. His son was severely ill. So he sent two sages to go visit Rabbi Chlimadosa. He was in Yavne and traveled to the north to where Rebchanim Dosa lived to go have them pray for the healing of his son. As soon as Rebchanim Dosa saw them, he saw these two messengers, he knew exactly what they wanted. And before they even came to grant a request, go pray, Rebchanim wants you to pray for his son, he went up to the loft, he went up on top of the roof of his house, and he started praying. And when he finished praying, he came down and he says to them, you should go back home, go back to Gamliel. The fever has already left. The child has been healed. Again, they're dozens of miles away from the sun. And this is after the time where prophecy has no longer been a, a thing amongst our nation for hundreds of years. So they said to him, they uh, inquired, are, are you a prophet? How do you know? That the, that the fever has subsided and the child's been healed. He says, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of the prophet. But I have a tradition, quoting the Mishnah, that if the prayer goes smoothly, I know it's going to be accepted. I know God's going to listen to me. And therefore, I know that the child has been healed. So they quickly looked at, the, at their clock to find out exactly what time it is. And they said, okay, well, we're going to test you. And they went back to Ramangam Leel. They find indeed that the child was healed. And they inquired, when exactly did this happen? When did the child get healed? He said, well, at this point, the same as that time where Rokhani Mendoza claimed that it happened, the child woke up, his fever went away, and he requested some water to drink. He was healed. There is another story that tells us about his prayer and how he saved the son of a great sage. It was the son of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He was sick. And... Rabbi Yochum was the undisputed greatest sage of the time, the greatest leader of the time, like the uh, the sage that everyone looks up to. Rabbi Yochum was a great sage, but not on that same level. Yet Rabbi Yochum son gets ill and he goes and asks Rabbi Yochum to go pray for the healing of his son. And the Talmud describes what he did. He said he placed his head between his knees and he prayed, beg for mercy is the words of the Talmud, and this child was healed. And Rabbi Yochum announced, had I done that, had I stuck my head between my knees, prayed for the whole day, it wouldn't have worked. Even though I'm the greatest sage, still his prayer is more effective than mine. So Rabbi Yochum wife says to him, wait a minute, you're the greatest sage of the generation. Is he greater than you? Rabbi Yochum is greater than you? How is it possible that his prayer is more effective than yours? So he says, no, no, no. He's not greater than me. 
he is similar to a servant who is always in the palace. He's a servant of the, of the king and he's always in the palace. He's always in and out talking to the king. He doesn't need permission, so to speak, to walk in because he's a regular. I am like a visiting dignitary. And therefore, when you walk in, it has to be more formal, it has to be more recognized. And therefore, yes, I'm greater than him, but with respect to prayer, he's like, even though he's like a servant, he's a lower, he's a low-level staffer, so to speak, but because he's a regular there, therefore he has easy access to God, so to speak. I'm a visiting dignitary, I may be a, uh, someone who's a, a minister, but therefore our meetings are more formalized and more rigid, and therefore I don't have that same regular access. An interesting idea here that the prayer of someone who is more regular with God, who's more active in prayer, is more effective than even someone who is greater than them as a person. And the commentaries explain that Rabbi Chimidosa was someone who excelled in prayer and was involved with it all the time. Rabbi Yochum was the leader of the nation. He was involved with very weighty issues. He was the greatest scholar. He was the head of the academy, teaching thousands of of of, of sages and, and and rabbis. And he was the leader, and therefore he didn't have the same kind of time and and space to really focus on prayer in that same way. And therefore, he wasn't as uh, successful in doing that. So just some more of the characteristics ascribed to Rabbi Hanim Adosa in the Talmud. Uh, we read about his fastidiousness in tithing. Uh, once his uh, wife uh, borrowed some seasoning, some spices from the neighbor, but the neighbor didn't tithe them. And when, it's, when you have untithed food, you can't eat the food until you tithe it. Now, there's certain ways to tithe it. You could tithe it kind of mentally. You could say, okay, I'm setting aside a portion. You don't have to actually literally separate the the two, like the tithe from the untithe portion or from the portion that's consumable. But his wife borrows from the neighbor. The neighbor didn't tithe. And by the way, we'll read more about this neighbor. It's probably the same neighbor. The Talmud describes this neighbor. They had an evil neighbor, wicked neighbor. So probably that's why they didn't tithe it. So they borrow the spices and it's Shabbos. They're about to eat the meal and the table starts shaking because the food's untithed. And and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And his wife remembers that she didn't tithe the food that she got from the neighbor. She tells her husband. So Rabbi Hanina says, okay, I'm going to mentally tithe a portion of that food. And right away, the table uh, straightened itself out. And he was able to consume the food uh, that was tithed now. And by the way, he was a miracle worker in ways that are pretty astounding as we will get to. So this is just the first miracle. And by the way, this is not the first miracle that we're going to deal with that involves a table. Stay tuned. The Talmud also tells us that once his donkey was stolen, Rabbi Chimidosin's donkey was stolen. And the people who stole it, obviously, were either probably not Jews or bandits or maybe they were Jews, but not very religious ones. And they have this donkey. Amazing. What a valuable haul from their uh, from their theft. And they bring it to their lair or to their headquarters and they, they want to feed it some food. But the food that they offer is untithed. And the donkey of Rebuchanin Bandosa is so customized to the spiritual way, refuses to eat it. It kind of could sense that the food is untithed and it refuses. And for days they're trying to feed the animal and the animal doesn't doesn't eat. So they say, okay, it's going to die, right? I'd rather not have this stinking carcass of the donkey in our front yard. So they just let it go. And the donkey just walked back home to Rebchani Mendoza.
And the Talmud comments, if the earlier ones, if the earlier sages were like angels, then maybe we're like people. It means that there's been such a step down. If the, if the earlier sages were like angels, then we're maybe like people. If the earlier sages were like people, then we're like donkeys. But not the donkey of Rabbi Madosa, like regular donkeys. That's what the Talmud says. Uh, it's just a, a side note talking about kind of like his donkey kind of became even more spiritual than other donkeys. Just what that means, of course, is interesting to, to ponder nonetheless. The Talmud talks about his uh, supreme holiness. It says that there was a, uh, a scorpion. It's not clear if it was a scorpion or some, some other uh, harmful uh, animal. Was it a scorpion or was it a snake? Was some sort of harmful animal that anyone that passed by a certain area, it would bite and kill. So everyone was terrified. So Rabbi Hanim says, okay, I got this. He walks over to the area where the scorpion was living and it kind of near its 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 hole and he stuck his foot in it. So the scorpion comes and bites him. And the scorpion dies. So he takes the animal, a scorpion or snake, whatever it was, probably a snake, and he flings it over his shoulders and he walks into the academy and he shows them, see this? It's dead. And he screams at them. He tells them what powerful lesson. He says, look, my sons, it's not the snake that kills, it's the sin that kills. And the Talmud concludes that, that everyone developed, the people in, in, in town developed a saying, woe to the man bitten by the snake. And woe to the snake who bites Rabbi Dosa. Because they're going to die and he's going to be uh, okay. There's another very um, dramatic story about a lion that infiltrated uh, the the civilization or the, 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 the town or whatever. And everyone was terrified and he, he screams at the lion, go away. And he, the lion runs away from him in, in terror. Again, this idea that when someone is totally sin-free, they're like an angel and it's the animals that are scared of them for good reason, not vice versa. The Talmud tells a story that Rabbi Hanim Dosa was walking uh, along a path and it started raining. So he prayed. He said, Master of the world, everyone is happy now because there's rain, rain for crops. Remember in Israel, the rain is a big deal because it's, if it takes, you know, if it takes some time, it's very cyclical and very seasonal. And you, in fact, there's a whole book written about the prayers that we institute and the fast days that we institute when there is insufficient rain. So he's along the way and it starts raining and he says, the whole world is happy, but I'm sad because now I'm, I'm walking and it's muddy, it's raining, it's not, not ideal conditions to, to, to travel. So right away the rain stopped. He gets home and he prays again. He says, now it's the opposite. The whole world is sad because there's no rain, but I'm happy because I'm home and I don't have any fields anyhow. And therefore, it doesn't matter to me that there's no rain. So that's the, so I'm happy now. Let everyone else be happy. And right away, the rain started uh, again. The Talmud gives a very long story, a very interesting one, about his poverty and his piety nonetheless. So the Talmud says that they were very poor, but they tried very hard to conceal their poverty. They didn't want people to come in. They didn't want people to offer him help. They refused to accept any charity. And therefore, they tried to conceal their poverty as much as they could. 
So Friday afternoon, everyone's getting ready for Shabbos and everyone's making food. Well, they don't have any food. So what does his wife do? His wife takes some twigs, puts them in the oven, and the oven would connect to the chimney. And people see there's a fire coming out of the chimney. Okay, they must be baking bread. That was her weekly practice. But they have a neighbor. Talmud says this is the wicked neighbor. And so the wicked neighbor says, I'm going to get them. I'm going to discover their ruse. I know this is all a ruse. I know they're playing games. So they barge into the house. And Rukhim Dos's wife hears that someone's there and they're all embarrassed because now they're, they're making this phantom fire and just to kind of show that they're making bread when really there is no bread. And so she flees to the other room. But the Almighty made a miracle. And this neighbor that barges in gets to the oven and the oven is overflowing with bread. And there's a basin next to the oven overflowing with dough. So she quickly changes her tune. She screams out to her, to Tokhanus' wife, hurry back. Your bread is, is about to be burnt. So she responds, yeah, I'm just going to get the shovel to go shovel out the bread. I was just going to get it. She comes back with the shovel and shovels out the bread. And the Talmud adds, this is, I think, the most interesting part of the story. She actually was going to the other room to get a shovel. Even before she knew about the miracle, because she knew that miracles happened, and she knew there must be a miracle like this, and it was no big deal. It was, it was anticipated, and therefore when she went to the room, she wasn't lying when she says, I'm going to get a shovel, because she really was, because she knew the neighbor was barging in, and she knew what that meant. That meant that God's going to make a miracle, and there will be bread there. There's another very dramatic story uh, related to their poverty. At uh, one time, Rav Chimdos's wife tells her husband, how much longer could we suffer? How much longer could we suffer? I can't handle it anymore. The poverty is too grinding. So, okay. So he goes and he starts praying. And a heavenly palm extends down and has in it a thick golden leg. So he takes the leg and he goes home. And he says, okay, God answered our prayer. We're rich now. Nothing to worry about. Okay, problem solved, right? Not really. His wife has a dream. And in the dream, they're in Olam Abba. They're in the afterlife. They're in heaven. And everyone is sitting around on a table that has three legs. And their table has only two. So it's wobbly. It's unsteady. And she realizes what happened. He asked to be have his pain alleviated and got a down payment on heaven, but that's going to come at the expense of their lifestyle, so to speak, in heaven. So she realizes, I don't want any part of this. I don't want to, I don't want to compromise on my experience in heaven so that I could have some wealth over here. So she says to her husband, okay, you know what? The golden leg, give it back. I'm not interested. So he goes back and he prays. And again, a heavenly arm extends and takes away the golden leg. That's what the Talmud says. And then the, the Talmud comments, which one of those two was a greater miracle? And the Talmud concludes that the miracle of God giving the golden leg, well, that's great. But it's even a greater miracle that God would, so to speak, take away the golden leg. Because once God gives, it's very hard to get God to withdraw 
to Renee to pull back. And therefore, that's even a greater miracle that displays uh, his spiritual prowess that he was able to get God to take it away. As an aside, what is this idea that in heaven there is tables with three legs? Typically, we think of a table as having four legs. Why are the tables in heaven comprised of three legs? So the Maharsha, the great commentator on the Talmud, in that uh, in that book, in the book of Tainus, page 25a, tells us, he references the Mishnah Perkavos, the second Mishnah Perkavos, says, the world stands on three things. He says, don't think that it's this world. It's the next world. Every person's experience in Olaba is supported, is has three pillars that upholds it. And that's, of course, Torah, uh, Avodah, worship of God, and kindness. Those are the three pillars that uphold your spiritual world. He prayed and he got a down payment on one of them. Ramar Shah argues that it's the one of prayer because he was so – this was prayer itself and he was so superlative in his prayer. He got a down payment of his prayer leg and therefore his spiritual world is going to be held up only by Torah and kindness and that's not enough. That's not sufficient. It will be wobbly. I want to point out on this particular story uh, an insight that if someone has – two legs upholding their table, the table, of course, is not going to be stable. What if someone has three legs, but one leg is really big and robust, and the other two are kind of rickety? The same problem might exist. The table will still be unstable, would still be a little bit askew. Not maybe the same thing, but that too, I think, is another takeaway of this idea that our spiritual world it's standing on these three pillars and we want those three pillars to be stable and to be symmetrical. So just hold that thought because we're going to get back to that in a little bit. Uh, maybe the most famous story about Rabbi Chaim Mendoza and the miracles that happened to him is the story where his daughter um, bought the wrong item before Shabbos. Her father sent her to go buy oil before Shabbos. Why do you need oil before Shabbos? Because you have to light the Shabbos candles. So she went to buy the oil, and instead, she ended up with vinegar. Either the product was mislabeled, or she wasn't exactly uh, – she she didn't verify the label properly. She ends up with the wrong – with the wrong item, and she's all devastated. So her father sees her devastated. He says, well, what's the matter? She's crying. What? He says, well, I went to the store to buy the oil, and I ended up with vinegar. So her father says, don't worry. What does it matter? The same God who commanded oil to burn to command vinegar to burn. No big deal. It's, they're both the same thing. Oil burning and vinegar burning both are contingent in God's will and therefore it doesn't really matter. So they lit the vinegar for Shabbos and the Talmud says, well, the vinegar lasted not just Friday night, the entirety of Shabbos and they used the same light to make Havdalah, to kind of accentuate this miracle. And uh, the, the logic behind it is sound again. It's the same God and the same the, – the rules of nature aren't their own independent rules. They're only mandated by God. And therefore, if oil is burning, it's because God wants it to burn. So why doesn't vinegar burn? Well, that's because that's part of the test for us, that we don't realize that it's God who tells the oil to burn. We think the oil itself burns. But when you do realize that it's God who makes the oil burn, then by extension, it's, no, it's not even a miracle for God to make vinegar to burn because after all, it's the same – Operation. You're lighting something and God's declaring that it should burn. Indeed, it did burn. Uh, one final story uh, of Rabbi Hanina Bendosa. 
And that is the story of the hens and the goats and the bears. Oh my. Uh, Rabbi Hanina's wife, she found some chickens on her doorstep. Someone lost the chickens. So what do you do when you find a lost object? Well, there's essentially a book in Talmud governing what happens. But if you have a identifying sign, then you have to really essentially hold it until the owner comes back and claims their lost object. So she finds the hens, she finds the chickens, and her husband tells her, we can't use it, of course, because it's not ours. It belongs to the to the person who's the rightful owner. Well, what happens with hens? They laid they laid eggs, and husband tells her, "Well, we can't use the eggs. They're not our eggs. They belong to the real owner." Well, some time passed, and the eggs hatched. So now there's chickens everywhere, and of course this continues. So the house becomes full of chickens. So it becomes a problem. So what does he do? He sells the chickens and buys goats, and he starts raising the goats. And, and again, does not use any of them for his own benefit. They're not his after all. So he's doing all the work of growing the wealth of the owner. He has no idea what the owner is. Meanwhile, these goats are romping around. And the neighbors start complaining. These goats are causing damage. We have a problem here. you got to rein in your goats. So he tells them, he says, if these goats that I'm watching for the rightful owner, if they're the ones doing damage then bears should eat them. But if not, if the goats are not doing damage, then let them kill the bears and have the bears attached to their horns. So that next night, each one of the goats arrived and there's a bear hooked on to their goats. And now everyone knows that, no, it wasn't that these goats uh, that were causing the damage. Sometime later, a traveler returns to their neighborhood. And Rabbi Hanina overhears him saying, this is the place where I lost my chickens. Anyone see them by any chance? Rabbi Hanina Dosa says, well, what were the identifying marks? That these indeed were yours. So he gives them the marks. He says, okay, well, here's your goats. He gives them like a whole flock of goats. (laughs) This flock of goats is yours because... Uh, of course, the whole story, he tended to them uh, in the in the interim. It might be a good idea if you have chickens that you don't want to tend to, just drop them on his doorstep and come back a few months later. The Talmud concludes its assessment of Rabbi Hanin Badosa that uh, when he died, there was no war, there was no longer any men of great action. He was a man of great action. There was all these miracles that happened with him and his actions were something where really his... Uh, Emblematic, uh, um, uh, the characteristic of uh, of his great of his greatness, and he's the author of our Mishnah, and he tells us essentially three things: that the fear of sin has to precede wisdom for the wisdom to endure; the actions have to be more numerous than the wisdom for the wisdom to endure; and if the spirit of people is positive with a person, then you know for sure that the spirit of God is positive for a person. So, so what does this, so what does this mean? First of all, what does fear of sin mean? What does it mean, men of action? What's the connection between those two? Why are those connected to wisdom? It's a great, uh, mystery, at least upon initial assessment. So I think a simple understanding is 
that fear of sin, it's not just avoidance of sin. It's avoidance of sin to the degree where someone's actually quite fearful. And they'll take preventative, prophylactic measures to ensure that they don't sin. Meaning that they recognize that sin is so bad and it's such a real present threat that they take steps before they encounter sin to make sure that they don't even encounter sin. They could sidestep it and avoid it entirely. What does that mean? When someone has that attitude, it means that the wisdom of Torah is not left to the theoretical realms only. It's actually implemented. And therefore, he's telling you, if someone is studying Torah with the intention of implementing, meaning that their, that their fear of sin preceded their study, well, then the study is, is a different kind of study. You're studying the Word of God. You're studying something which is relevant, something which is practical, not something which is just intellectual. And therefore, such a study, the wisdom will endure. Whereas if someone is studying it just for the sake of wisdom, they don't kind of have that other layer of interaction, of interfacing with the study. That is, how do I implement it to the degree that a man of action, their actions are more numerous than their wisdom and their fear of sin is present. Well, if they don't have that, then the wisdom is just intellectual and then it is on more shaky grounds. So there's a few different ways that the commentators actually precisely define what does it mean, fear of sin, what's the difference between fear of sin and action. So, for example, uh, we read about one of the um, – we know the Torah has negative mitzvahs and positive mitzvahs. So fear of sin is the negative mitzvahs. Actions is the positive mitzvahs. Fear of sin is the fear of God. Positive actions is the love of God. But the idea that these two really go together – and these are attitudes of someone whose wisdom is not intellectual alone. It has very deep roots. And therefore, there's a certain synergy between their study and their behavior. And such a study is likely to endure. Whereas if the, the action is divorced from the study, then the, they indeed will not endure. The wisdom will not endure. So, for example, I, I read a book recently called The Talent Code, and this is one of his points. There's two kinds of study. There's the theoretical study, and then there's a, kind of the implementational study. He calls it like deep practice. An example that he gives is the um, the thing that we could all say by heart, but when it come, push comes to shove, we probably won't be able to do it. How to put your life jacket on or your your, your life vest on in the airplane. You blow in like this, you blow in like that, right? He, he says it's quite likely that if in the unlikely event, but in the event that actually happens of landing on water, most people won't really know how to do it because they've never done it. They just kind of see it on this intellectual level, but it's not on an implementory level. And therefore, they, they'll get there. They'll be flummoxed. They won't really know what to do. As opposed to if people instead, when they got on the plane, they actually had to put one on, that kind of level of learning, you're kind of dealing with what exactly it is, that's a level of learning, a wisdom that will endure. There was a, a video recently going out online uh, about a time where the oxygen masks actually dropped and everyone was doing it wrong. Yeah. You're supposed to cover your nose and your mouth and you, know, you first put yourself and then you do the baby, right? But everyone had it under just their mouth and like they, they just got it wrong. And everyone's seen it a million times. 
yet they've never actually done it. it. It's all totally theoretical, and therefore, when push comes to shove, the wisdom did not endure. Whereas, if they actually had it drop and they forced you to do it, if your wisdom, if your study was on an implementory level, then your wisdom will endure. So we see here like a prerequisite of, of wisdom. Prerequisite of wisdom to endure is to, to implement it with action and to be fearful of sin, two sides of one whole. Otherwise, the wisdom will eventually erode. I want to share two very deep insights from Rabbeinu Yonah. The very deep points and he has a slightly different way of, of articulating of uh, this um, this Mishnah, these two Mishnahs. But I think it's worthwhile to go through them because I think there's something very powerful and deep in what he says. So he says like this. Suppose you have someone who doesn't have fear of sin, but they want to study. So they study Torah. They learn about the sins of the Torah, but they don't have the fear of sin. So what happens when they study? So if they do have the fear of sin, then there's a symbiotic relationship between the study and and their behavior. Like we said, there's the synergy between what they're learning about and what they're actually doing. So it's going to be mutually encouraging. They study and that encourages their behavior because they're doing the behavior already and the behavior encourages the study. They really work hand in hand. However, what happens when someone's wisdom does not jive with their fear of heaven? Well, what happens their study is actually going to create these cycles of guilt. And it's going to create what we call today cognitive dissonance. There's going to be conflict between what they study and how they behave. And that's going to kind of repel him from study because who wants to study in a way that causes them pain? Nobody wants to do that. And therefore their behavior is going to cause that their study is going to be shunned because such a study will be painful because it's study which goes against someone's way of life and therefore this kind of wisdom won't endure because eventually they'll abandon it. It'll become too painful the more they get into it. The interesting idea that he essentially defines what we call today cognitive dissonance. This is actually what he says that when there's a conflict between how you behave versus how you live intellectually, it creates a problem and eventually you have to choose one or the other and of course – you choose the path of least resistance, and that often is keep your entrenched behavior in place, but these new ideals get swapped for more convenient ones. That's his first point. That's with respect to fear of sin. And then he says with actions. You have to have your actions be more numerous than your study, than your wisdom. So yes, yeah, a very interesting question. He says, wait a minute. I have 100 units of wisdom. I have to have 120 units of action. But can I only do the action when I already have the wisdom? If I don't know what the Torah wants from me, how can I act upon it and implement it? Isn't there a precondition of action, the knowledge what action is appropriate? How is it ever possible, just technically speaking, to have more actions than wisdom when the actions are predicated on the wisdom being present prior. It's kind of like the dilemma that we he invokes this himself of the we will do and we will listen. How could he do if you don't know? Same kind of question. So he says a, a novel insight. 
what does it mean if our actions are more numerous than our wisdom? So he says something like this. He says there's something called a, a an action that is a result of a general acceptance. Someone doesn't know anything. They say, you know what? I'm convinced in the general sense of the divinity of Torah, the veracity of Torah, the indispensability of Torah, the truth of the Torah, the benefit of Torah. I, I accept it in general terms. I don't know the details yet. We'll learn the details. That's the wisdom. But the actions, once someone accepts the Torah in general, that already is considered that they accepted all the details, all the, all the particulars. And therefore, when someone accepts the Torah in general, essentially they have actions of all 613. Because they've accepted the entirety, the totality of it, and included in the totality is all the parts. And therefore, general acceptance equals actions of everything. And therefore, the wisdom could, could follow. Now, how do you actually implement? What are the details of these 613? That could follow, and that's the proper model. First, you buy into the whole picture, and then, and then you get, what he would call, you get your, your actions are more numerous than your wisdom, and then you study the wisdom, and that's the way to do it, uh, in an effective, cohesive, uh, way, complementary way. However, what if you do go the opposite route? You want to study before you implement. So you study and then you implement. Well, what happens then? He says like this. Then your study is problematic. Why would your study be, study be problematic? Very deep point. Study of someone who doesn't have character is flawed. The study of someone, the eff- effectiveness and the stature of the study of someone who does not have good character, it's not as great as the study of someone who does have good character. And therefore, this person is doing the study. I'll study and then I'll, and then I'll, I'll implement. Well, if you haven't implemented, you're someone of flawed character. And if someone of flawed character, well, then your, your study won't endure. Deep insight. Multiple deep insights here. Uh, A, that general acceptance equals action. B, that when someone does not implement, so to speak, before they study, then the study itself is flawed and therefore the study will not endure. Finally, we see the third Mishnah that there has to be a balance. Someone has to be loved by God, of course, but someone also has to be loved by other people. If we're loved below, we can know for sure that we're loved above. The relationship that we have with other people is part of the connection, maybe even a large part or the majority part of the connection that we have with the Almighty. If our connection with others is solid, we can know for sure that our connection with God is solid. And I want to point out that this connection is not just with strangers. I would say quite the contrary. The connection with other people is the primary connection with other people is people that are most close to us, like our family, our children, certainly our spouses, our parents, our siblings, that is the area where we are, what's most, our interpersonal responsibilities are most exhibited is in those close relationships. And if there's some problem with those relationships, we should know that we're told over here there's a problem with our relationship with God as well. This is why this explains a lot of uh, the teachings that we read about in the Talmud and of course uh, about the great sages like Abraham, for example. Abraham was the one who discovers God, right? So he's the paragon of faith of monotheism, open up the Torah, 
you'd expect to read all about that. Yet you read very little about that. All you read about is kindness, how he treats other people, how he goes out and lives to save other people. And that's the answer. That really the connection that you have with God is going to be manifested by the connection you have with other people. And the idea of a Chinese wall separating your relationship with God and your relationship with other people is anathema to Torah. It doesn't work like that. If your connection to other people is problematic, your connection to God by definition is also problematic. You can't have one without the other. They are mirror images of each other. You want to know how has God view you? Find out how other people view you and then you'll know the answer. And we see this, uh, for example, the great story of Hillel uh, with the prospective convert balancing on one leg. All of Torah. What's all of Torah? That that you despise, don't do to others, right? Which is a way of saying love others as yourself. That's all of Torah. And that's all of Torah? The majority of Torah is mitzvahs between man and God. The majority. Or at least a huge focus. So how's that all of Torah? That's, that's part of Torah. That's, that's interpersonal, sure. That makes sense now. That's all of Torah because if you have that necessarily, you have the other and those two together is the ideal. I want to suggest an idea, uh, a novel idea on this particular Mishnah. Uh, This is uh, something that I thought of uh, when researching for this Mishnah and particularly in light of reading all these amazing stories of Rabbi Madosa. So, of course, we read about his prayer and how his prayer is saving people. And we read about uh, the miracles, the vinegar is burning and the pretty cool uh, image of the goats with bears on their horns. Pretty cool. But the, the one story that kind of st- stuck out in my eyes is the one with the snapshot of heaven. This table, you have a table and table supported by three Legs. And of course, this is symbolic, like, like we said, of the three aspects of our spiritual life. We said Torah, Avod, and Torah, worship of God, kindness. Well, what do we say with that? We say Torah is man's achieving personal perfection. Avoda, worship of God is relationship, perfecting relationship with God. And kindness, of course, is emblematic of the idealized relationship between man and one's fellow. Treating other, other fellow with kindness. Those three together, they uphold our spiritual world. And of course, if you pull away one of those legs, well, the table's wobbly, the table's unsteady, the table maybe will collapse. You can't have that. You have to have a table with three legs. Well, what if you have three legs, like we mentioned earlier? It just one leg is thick, it's robust, it's immovable. And the other one, you have a leg, yes, but it's kind of rickety, it's kind of weak, it's a little bit unstable. Well, what then? Same problem exists. The table's not secure. He has this amazing insight. What does he tell us? He tells us the same point. That if you have fear of heaven without wisdom, well, that, that doesn't work. Actions without wisdom, that doesn't work. They all have to kind of ladder up together. The way God views you, the way other people view you, those have to be the same. You have to create... Symmetry, balance, stability, when you grow spiritually, it shouldn't be in one area at the expense or even in lieu of the other area. 
If you're growing in one area, that necessitates, that mandates that the other areas of your spiritual persona are also improved. Not just that you cannot, you cannot have one and not the other. Even if you have both, they have to be balanced. So your fear of heaven, wisdom, don't say I'll have wisdom and then we'll deal with fear of heaven later. I'll do lots of wisdom but ignore the action. I'll have people view me positively but not God or vice versa. If God view, view me positively but not people. They all have to grow simultaneously because that collectively is going to be the spiritual identity that we're going to live with for all eternity. We have to ladder up simultaneously in all areas, in Torah, in action, in fear of God, in action with our fellow man, in Torah, in Avodah, Masasadim, all three of those together without ignoring any one of them. That is the idealized uh, approach. Otherwise, you're going to have major problems and your spiritual edifice, so to speak, in heaven is going to be flawed structurally, so to speak, unsound, and unlikely to endure. It's a very important word because endure does have the idea of continuity. And of course, that maybe is a hint towards the idea of heaven and the eternality. You want something to endure. You want it to last forever. It's not going to last if it is not complemented with greatness in all areas of our spiritual life.